Good morning, everyone. My name is Keith. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, and I am one of the pastors here at Church of the Incarnation, and this morning we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, where we're learning to pray like Jesus as we look at these different themes and these different kinds of Psalms that are included in Israel's prayer book, which was Jesus' prayer book. And this morning, we're going to be looking at anger. Where do I go with my anger? And I Recognize that even as I say that, some of you are probably wondering, like, if you could fake having to go to the bathroom and, um, and not have to sit through this. Anger is an uncomfortable thing to think about. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. And we're going to look at that this morning. It's tricky. Um, if all of our emotions were coming over for Thanksgiving dinner, right, somehow, embodied emotions were going to join us, no one would want to sit next to anger on the couch to watch the football game, right? Anger's the one that we would avoid, that we would um, wonder, how did this dude make it into the family in the first place? Anger is tricky, it's fraught, it's part of the shadow side of our existence. The psychiatrist um, Carl Jung says that anger is the place where the unowned part of your personality lives. It's the place where the unowned part of your personality lives, where the dark experiences are, where the dark memories are, the dark relationships and the pain. We've all experienced anger. We've all had outbursts of anger. And and if you're all of us here this morning are either in the midst of feeling angry about something or have recently felt angry about something for a sustained period of time or at some point in your life will feel that way. It's unavoidable, but we don't like it because it makes us feel out of control. Um, when I'm angry, when I re- recognize that I'm angry, when I'm off kilter in anger, I'm out of control. And the people that I'm angry at, I'm disconnected from them. I'm not attached to them. I'm not, like, we're not on the same side of the table. We're now on, all of a sudden, opposite sides of the table, right? And I don't see them primarily as someone who I'm happy to be related to. It's, I'm, it's out of control. I'm antagonizing them and uh, villainizing them. This is probably common for all of us too. We're just kind of getting the nasty, like uncomfortable stuff out there. Let's call it what it is. All of my worst memories in my entire life, all of them are framed by my own anger or the anger of someone else. If you think back to like your worst memories, it's somewhere in that still life photograph is your anger or the anger of someone else. Maybe they were acting out in anger in front of you, or maybe they were doing something because of their anger toward you. But whatever the case, anger is right there. And beyond that, beyond that it makes us feel uncomfortable when we think about anger and our own anger, isn't it forbidden? Like, the fact that you would, if you were to acknowledge that you have anger, that you have a close relationship with anger, that anger crops up frequently in your life, to admit that, aren't you admitting that you're like kind of um, sidling up to something that's forbidden 
by the Bible, or at least is really sketchy for an ethical, well-heeled Christian to grapple with, a mature person. I mean, Jesus says to turn the other cheek. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. He says in the same Sermon on the Mount, bless the ones who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. So isn't the fact that you would have anger kind of indicting you? Paul says that all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, it's like a truth and advertising thing. Like you're going to have difficulties. So what right do you have then, if you kind of treat these passages as a math problem, what right do you even have to be angry? I mean, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to roll with everything, right? Pull the oars in and let the, the wicked world dash you against whatever rocks or capsize you, however it may. You're going to be persecuted, and you have no right to have a negative emotion about it, especially anger. I came up in that kind of a world. I came up in a, in a very, like, when, how would you say it? I know I'm, this is live-streamed. I came up in a, in a theological environment where God's sovereignty and providence were so emphasized. They were so deafeningly up in the mix that to have a negative emotion about your circumstances was treason. It was treason to think, this is crappy. I can't believe that this happened. I mean, to have any kind of negative emotion, even if it's that your dad just died suddenly of a heart attack two days after he had taken you and your whole family to a baseball game. 63 years old, in the receiving line at his funeral, one of my good friends and his wife came up to give us hugs, and one of them said to us, sovereignty of God. Like, you just deal with it. You just accept it. You just kiss the son lest he become angry and celebrate the fact that this thing happened. There's no room to be angry. There's no room to have these feelings. So anger is uncomfortable because of how it makes us feel out of control. It's uncomfortable because of the memories that we associate with fits of rage or someone acting out of anger to hurt us or to do us dirty. But it's also forbidden, or we think of it that way, and sketchy in terms of the ethics of the kingdom. So we deny it or downplay it. We suppress it. When it happens, we cover it up. And there are reasons for this, and there are reasons for this that we're going to see as we open up God's word this morning. The good news for us this morning, as we're going to see in Psalms, especially Psalm 69, is that we're not robots that we do have emotions, that God made us to feel things, including anger. He gave that to us, and that, and that emotions are not bad, including anger. God made us to feel sadness and fear and joy and hurt and betrayal and peace and guilt and satisfaction and pain. And the Psalms have a lot to offer us regarding what anger is and what to do with it. So let's look first at what anger is. And then we'll consider what to do with anger. This is my own definition. What is anger? Anger is a normal reaction to a perceived attack on shalom. Anger is a normal reaction 
to a perceived attack on shalom. God made everything with this shalom as the basis of it, the nucleus of it, the bedrock of it. It's what permeates everything. It's fundamentally how God made the world and the gift that he gave to the world. It's the heartbeat of God throughout the kingdom of God. It's the heartbeat of God throughout the world. It's what was broken in Genesis 3, and it's what is being restored as the story plays out. Shalom is the bedrock of it. Shalom in the world, how God created everything in perfect equilibrium and harmony. All of these symbiotic relationships, and as this is humming and vibrating for the first time, God says, this is very good. This is really, really nice. It's perfect. He made shalom among people. There's another psalm, one that I love. It's a little offbeat. But it talks about brothers dwelling together in harmony and how good and pleasing that is to God. God created shalom um, among people, and he calls that good and pleasant when there's shalom among us. He created shalom in each of us to resonate with God, to resonate with his creation, to resonate with one another. It's the thing, the image that he put in each of us, the image that exists perfectly in the Trinity that's given to us, not just that he made you with his thumbprints in you to to bear his image, but he made you with this relational um, navigational equipment that's calibrated to shalom, to be shalom-like with others. And when that's happening, it's good and pleasant. But he also made you personally to resonate with him, to resonate with creation and humanity. Psalm 8 is a great picture of this. Aubrey preached on this a few weeks ago. But you can see there how, how creation, there's this shalom that's in creation and then that we as humans are wrapped up in that and part of it. God gave us this shalom and we're all supposed to have it. It's the sacred core of each of us, this gift. And it's the sacred core of every person. It's the sacred gift of, of, of every community. It's the sacred nucleus of all that we know and all that we see and all that we hope for as we have to look through f- fractures and fissures in the broken world. To be safe, to be settled, to belong, to have this, this, uh, this habitat that incubates joy and satisfaction that enables goodness and wholeness to break out and flourish. As the psalmist says over and over, this blessedness emerges from it. So what is anger? Anger is the normal reaction to a perceived attack on shalom. If this is what God made and how he made everything down to the finest detail, If shalom is the macrocosm that leaches down and informs and and duplicates its DNA through every microcosm, then anger is when someone comes and smashes that, when someone comes and attacks that, when someone comes and steals that, when someone comes and, and, and grotesquely vandalizes that, there's anger because it inflicts pain on us. 
and loss and betrayal and grief. We see this happen and we, and we, and we feel those primary emotions that immediately yield to anger. So this is how God made it all, and this is how we might know him, and this is how we respond to something is when something wrecks it. Let's look at verse, um, let's look at Psalm 69, if you have your Bibles, and just kind of get an overview, a quick snapshot. We're going to look at four passages, and just to kind of show how shalom gets wrecked, it gets stolen, it gets trampled on, and then how the psalmist reacts to it in anger. This is the psalm that we just read, and maybe some of you remember some of those things that get said in that psalm and how uncomfortable they are, and then he goes right into like praising God. And, and so we're going to slow down and, and go through the psalm a little bit more methodically at a couple of points today. But let's look at Psalm 69, verses 1 through 5. And again, we're going to see here how Shalom gets wrecked by some enemies. He says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Verses 13 to 15, we get this a repetition of this imagery of drowning. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Shalom has been stolen from this person writing this psalm. The shalom is not feeling like you're drowning, feeling like you're overwhelmed by deep waters, that you're going to be swallowed up by a pit that's closing its mouth over you. And in 19 to 21, again, we see shalom trampled by enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me food. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This is what this person has suffered by people. We don't know the details. And, and the commentators, I love this, they say that it's really hard to pin down who this is or what specifically is going on. And it's like this general expression that's broadly applicable. That's God as a shepherd giving this to all of us that we might enter into it instead of just seeing it as this abstracted thing or this um, consolidated or, or, you know, quarantined thing that's just out there um, for a certain person or group of people. 
But listen now to how he responds. Listen to how um, anger is, is, is emerging because of this trampling of shalom, this normal reaction to a perceived attack on shalom. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him who you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So what is anger? It's this reaction it's also, if, as, you, as you hear this and as you feel this, it's dark. It's this expression of profanity and cursing. The Bible uses a really similar word for profanity. Um, there's, there's another word in it. It means really if you dig into it, which I haven't done because I know Hebrew really well, but, but other people who I read and, and certain apps that I have on my computer enable me to do this. Aubrey knows Hebrew. Aubrey reads Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew. But there's this, there's this word that's used for profanity, and it means outside the temple. Is that right, Aubrey? Um, <laughs> so if you, if you think of the temple being this... Uh, nerve center of shalom where the the presence of God dwells and the peace of Yahweh exists and and that's the nerve center of it that something that's profane is something that's outside of that and against that and so in this way we see that the purpose of profane language is to facilitate the expression of uncommon disordered and undesirable experiences God gives us in the scriptures profanity not so that we can just go off on people willy-nilly and so that we can give vent to our anger but so that when we are feeling this we have a place to go and say there's a reason that I'm feeling this there's a reason that I have this anger like a burning core in my guts and it's because of this violation of shalom. It's because of this wicked thing that's been done against what should be. It's this gift of God that's been violated in this way. And it makes me feel pain or isolation or fear or, or um, overwhelm. And because of that, I have this anger because of this profanity. And it's, isn't it amazing that God comes right up to this person in the midst of this prayer and gives language for that profanity. Something profane is happening. And God gives us instead of, well, but we're just going to rise above that. Sovereignty of God. No. Get down in there. He gets down in there with this person and gives a place for this person to give voice to it. That there's profane language in scripture that comes because of a normal reaction to profane things that happen in this world. So what is anger? 
It's this normal reaction to a perceived attack on shalom. And what do we do with anger? Three things. And we're going to go back into the psalm at a couple of points and, and touch on a few other things that are said in the psalms. Three simple things. First, to accept God's invitation to prayerfully bring your anger to him. I want to say that again. The first thing to do with your anger, instead of the natural things to do, which are to deny it or suppress it, ignore it, overlook it, pretend it doesn't exist because it's unsightly and unchristian. Instead of that, to say, no, this is part of the way God made me. And it's part of the way he made me because of he gave me eyes to see and he gave me a heart that feels. So the first thing is to accept God's invitation to prayerfully bring your anger to him. To acknowledge and accept that your anger is real. Your anger exists. You have anger. Not all the time, maybe. But certainly sometimes. And sometimes for a long time. Ten percent of the psalms are anger psalms. Out of 150, 15 of the psalms are straight-up anger psalms that have stuff like what we just read. So that's one of two things. That's either God telling us that anger is a normal part of our existence in a broken world. It's another example. It's another aspect of our common experience that he wants to use to bring us closer to him, that he wants to, to get into the thicket with us regarding. Uh, it's another opportunity for us to experience him as one who sticks closer than a brother. It's either that, the fact that 10% of the Psalms are anger Psalms, or it's like a mistake. Like, how do they get in here? Like, that's dirty talk. That's cursing talk. That's not Jesus talk. So it's a mistake. They shouldn't be in here. And now that we have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we should rip these out. Isaac Watts did. It's either God giving us language, but not just language, providing an, another avenue, another artery for intimacy. Or it's all these ungodly temper tantrums interspersed somehow with praise, hope, thankfulness, and worship. But the fact that anger and cursing and, and all this is mixed in with that, it must have been a mistake. It's not a mistake. So acknowledge and accept that your anger is real. Agree with God's word, the proportionality of it, the insistence of it, that this is something about you that's real, and God sees it. And he wants to be there with you in the midst of it, the midst of the pain or whatever is behind it. Here's a question. You remember the passage that Ben read from Numbers. What if Moses, what if Moses, who he and Aaron went into that tent and they fell down on their faces and God talked to them? Like David didn't have that. Moses knew God closely. What if Moses had, Miriam just died. Like, man, we've been out here marching around in the middle of nowhere forever, and all of my friends are dying, and all my family are dying, and now the last person in my generation, the last one of my people, not their kids, 
just died. Just died. And now the, right after that gets said, I go out and I get like accosted by all these people who are yelling at me and complaining and complaining to God and this whole plan is a sham. Why did you bring us out here to die? We can't grow pomegranates here. All of our animals are going to die. This is, this is what the dude is facing who's got like that grief fever because Miriam just died. Man, and he just wants to find a place to crawl in, under a rock and like deal with that. But he's got to do his job and so he goes out and this happens. And he goes to God and says, what should I do about this? And God says, go talk to the rock. Bring the staff, talk to the rock, and I'm going to have this water come out. Fine, I'll do that. Gets the staff, goes out there. Hey, rebels, you want some water? Here's some water. Wham, wham, and he hits the rock. And God is angry at Moses because he doesn't represent God to the people as holy. Like, and Moses doesn't go into the promised land. Because of that bad day, that anger that he unleashed on people, instead of maybe doing what this psalm writer does and taking this to God. I mean, God gives us this language. He gives us these psalms so that we can draw near to him and, and accept his invitation to bring our anger to him. It's like a fireplace that he's built for us to let this fire burn. God, I hate my job. I hate these people. Will they ever get it? They don't remember any of the bad things about Egypt? Hmm, let's try to think of some of those things that maybe are on the other side of the ledger against pomegranates and leeks and stuff. Gee whiz. And I just buried Miriam. You know that. What is your deal? You deal with these people. You give them water. If you want someone to talk to a rock, you do it. Like, he could have done that. That's the language that we get. That's the fireplace that God gives us to pour all those logs into. And the interesting thing is he wants to hear it. Like, he was okay with Israel talking like that. Do you notice that? You didn't represent me as holy. What's holy? Holy is, we're a family. These people are hot. They're thirsty. Their kids might die. Their animals might die. And they're mad. It's okay. They're doing what they're supposed to do. We don't roll up on people like that and hit them with sticks. We listen. God wants to listen to you. God is holy, and part of his holiness is his compassion and his patience. Scripture overwhelmingly confirms that your anger is real and normal and it brings you and it, and, it, and it invites you, it calls you to bring it to God, to pray the Psalms. So how specifically can we pray these Psalms? Two thoughts in closing. Number one, lean in honestly to Yahweh. Lean in honestly. This is uncomfortable because, again, we have to get past the fact that this is real. And not candy coat it. Say it all. I want to reread um, verses 19 to 28. Mm, I do want to, but I don't know if I really have time. All that uncomfortable stuff. He's saying stuff like, um, you know my situation, but then he's just going off on them. 
um, wanting their table, the place where they sit down to eat and have peace and refreshment, let that be a snare. When they sit down at their table to enjoy a meal with their family, let it close on them like a bear trap. Let their eyes be darkened. Let them be blind. Make their legs tremble. Add to them punishment upon punishment. He even asks that they get blotted out from the book of life. I mean, he goes the nuclear option. It's not just like let them suffer for a little while. Cut them off completely. He's really, really mad. You could imagine Moses maybe saying these things to God in that moment about Miriam. We see in Psalm 23 that God says, or David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where there's pain, where there's loss, where there's confusion, where there's anger, when I'm walking in that place, you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. We see elsewhere in the Psalms building on that. David says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, including the 10% of these psalms that are anger psalms. That's how God can stick with you in the valley of the shadow of death, when that includes that pain and that loss and that fear and that grief that often spawns seasons of anger. That these kinds of words are a lamp unto my feet. So say it honestly, lean in honestly to God. He's here, he's here as your shepherd, and he's here to shine a light on this part of your path. So number one, lean in honestly to Yahweh. Lastly, invite God into your anger. Invite God into it. Again, riffing on that same thing, which I think is our primary problem as well-heeled, social, socially intelligent you know, whatever, Western people, we don't do this openly as a culture. We don't acknowledge it. We don't accept it. So invite God into it. Acknowledge that it's real and that you don't have to be alone in it and invite God to fully participate in it. Sit down. I am so mad. And we're going to talk. And as I talk and as I vent, I also want to listen as I can eventually. And I want to see how this works in Psalm 69. If God is the great physician, then he is going to see where the real wound is. If he's a wonderful counselor, then he's going to see where the real wound is. And as you talk to him, he's going to get to whatever he needs to get at in you in that moment. Let's look at a couple of ways that God shows up as a great physician and a wonderful counselor to whoever wrote this psalm in the moment. It's like a counseling session. First, he, he comes and he, he helps this person move from secondary, the secondary emotion of anger to the primary emotion. Let's see in verse 22 to 28. If you've got your Bible again, 22 to 28 is when he kind of flies off the handle, right? And he just goes off and goes kitchen sink on these people and pulls every lever of judgment that he can think of poetically piled onto each other. 22 to 28 is the tirade. But as he comes out of that tirade, listen to what he says. One verse, 29. 
but I am afflicted and in pain. This verse stands by itself. That's not part of a stanza. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. It's like the break, the, the breakthrough moment in this counseling session. He's so aware up to this point of his circumstances. I'm overwhelmed. I'm drowning. I'm lost. And it's because of them. It's because of them. And I've looked for comfort, and I can't find anybody. I'm all alone. They even make fun of me at the gate, and they make up songs about me. Isn't it interesting? Like, if you think about this again in real time, like David is just like, or whoever wrote it, I'm sorry. Might have been Jeremiah. Whoever is doing this, it's just in, in real time. If you read it like instead of um, a well-thought-out um, treatise, like, like one of a Pauline letter or something, just read it like it's just the stuff that's coming out. He's so aware of this hurt and this offense and this um, s- stealing of his shalom that when you, re- when you read it that way, you even look at a verse like that and say, really? Do you really think that was real? You would never say this if if your spouse was talking this way or one of your kids or one of your friends. You you leave that alone. But but as we read this from a distance, we could be like, dude, I don't think that they were really doing that. I don't I don't know that people were really um, making fun of you at the gate. How do you or making up songs about you, but have you ever been in that space? You will be if you haven't, when you're so isolated by pain and some kind of trauma that wherever you go, you feel like everybody's just talking about it, knowing about it. There's nowhere that's safe. Everything is is, uh, bent against you. And you see these people who you vaguely know and you hear some drunkard singing a song and you immediately assume they're singing about me because I'm such a fool. They're singing about me because I'm so busted up. Everybody's laughing at me. It's not rational. It might not be real. Maybe it is real. I'm not trying to say that it's not. I'm not making a hermeneutical statement. I'm just inviting us to get into this space. And he's just dumping it all out there. And he, and he ends with this. He's just thrashing on these people from 22 to 28. And then, and then God, as a, as a great counselor, helps him get past that anger and get to the the heart of it, something that's even deeper, which is I am in so much pain right now. I am just in so much pain, God. I don't know if I really want you to go through with all that stuff I just said. And the thing is, I am in so much pain. Can I just say that to you, God? And please let your salvation set me on high. That's where he lands but he goes through all of this to get there. It's real. And that's God's invitation to bring, to come honestly and to invite God into it, to really talk to him about it and let him bring you to where he is gonna bring you in that moment. So he gets him from his secondary emotion of anger to this primary emotion of I'm in such deep pain. He also, if you notice, this is, Beautiful. Verses 1 through 31 is all pretty much from the first person singular perspective. It's about whoever's writing this, 
what's happened to them personally, how they're personally experiencing it, they're personally drowning. Almost all of it is they're, they're, make, they're, they're making their complaint and they're, and they're voicing how they feel and they're talking about the impact on them of whatever it is that these people have done. And then right after you get through that, verse 29, which I think is the hinge of the whole thing, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. We get one more verse of the first person. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And then from then on, 31 to 36, it's all second person plural. He's able to see community again. You notice that? He goes through this process and he's able to identify that pain, this pain, and to talk to God about that and invite him in to heal it. But he's also then, for the first time, able to see himself as part of a community. He didn't have that before. If you've ever been in pain like this, it is isolating. It is so isolating. And he's talking to God about it and God is lifting his eyes to just be able to see, look, you do have people. I will provide community for you again. He goes from being consumed with pain and injuries and injustices to seeing God's faithfulness. Look at verses 33 to 34. For the Lord hears the needy, and he does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. He's not talking about himself anymore. Now he's pointing out that, God, you are faithful. He also goes from being in utter despair, as we saw in those parallel verses or, ch or passages where he's sinking in the mire and he's being drowned. He goes through that twice in this um, relatively short psalm. He goes from that to seeing a future. Instead of being swallowed up in the jaws of some, um, some pit closing over him, he goes to, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and peoples shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. God has given us the Psalms to help us to pray. God has given us the Psalms to help us not just to pray like good people pray, but he's given us the Psalms to pray as a form of attaching to him, of bringing ourselves to him that he might lay hold of us in different ways through every different circumstance. And anger is one of those. As you con continue to follow God and as you experience all different things, including anger, let's run to the Psalms, starting with Psalm 69, and pray to God in faith, letting him know everything, knowing that he's there for us, and he's going to help us even in those times of pouring out our hearts. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.